Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Rabbi Miriam Charlin-Champ, and I'm your host. This week's episode is part two of the previous episode. So if you haven't heard the last episode, it would be good to press pause, go listen to it, and then come back when you're finished. In this episode, John McKnight and Cormac Russell continue discussing their new book, The Connected Community, Discovering the Health, Wealth, and Power of Neighborhoods by responding to questions about scale, how to begin, the importance of place, and the foster care system. Cormac begins by framing the first question for John. We do have one question that I want to acknowledge because it was put in the chat, which is a question about the optimal scale of a neighborhood. Is there a point past which a neighborhood's too big or before which it's too small to get a kind of a critical mass of energy going? So, John. Scale, the size. I think the answer is that in most situations, once you get beyond the place for the number of people can't really know each other by name and by gift, it'll force you to hire somebody to make the connection. While that may be necessary, I think the joint knowledge of everybody's capacity sets scale. You need to know on your block that Charlie is willing to teach young people how to repair cars. Or you need to know that there's an older woman who has lace that she can make and teach people how to make. And so it's that knowledge that can be connected in a woven way that Cormac showed that I think defines the best scale. I think you can have a larger scale where somebody has to keep track of the capacities of everybody, and that can work. But the best is no bigger than where we all know what each has to offer. And a friend of mine says, that's probably your own walking space. Think that way about the locality. It is also true that you can have too few people because the whole process that we're describing works best if you get a committed group of four or five people in a local place who are both understanding what people have to offer and making the connections that then result in functions being fulfilled. So there's a connected question then, which is around, can you actually do this from a freestanding start in a brand new neighborhood? And I think that's a great question. It's really interesting to just think about what we've been saying today in terms of proximity. And obviously, as people are living close by each other, the possibilities of being in relationship with the way we've described open out. But but your question, I think, is a little bit more about arriving new into a neighborhood for the first time or preparing the ground for people coming into the neighborhood for the first time. Functioning community that is inclusive as well would have a group of people whose function would be to welcome people to the community and to have that welcoming 
a recognition of their gifts plus the traditions and culture of the neighborhood. You're coming into a place that has a way, a special way, a way we've developed, a way we've developed out of our own capacities. Welcome. We just can't wait to find out what are the special gifts, capacities, skills, passion, and knowledge that you have. And that's a real welcome. You're valuable. Thanks for coming. You got stuff that will help make all of our lives better. And that's really critical as well, because as places get more urbanized and we also have greater levels of churn. So a lot of major cities now in neighborhood level are seeing a churn, which means a change in population every three to four years of as much as 40 percent. So the ability to welcome people into the neighborhood and to create a reputation that says we are welcoming we welcome people in. We want people to come and live here and you'll feel good about living here and you'll be hosted when you come here is really, really critical for the very survival of many neighborhoods going forward. You're meeting people at the beginning and saying, we are a we. When somebody says, where are you from or who are you? You don't answer, well, I I live on the 1200 block of Judson. The answer is who I am is a member of the people who are woven together on my block. That's who I am. Who I am is a member of the people who are woven together on my block. That's who I am. I'd like to share with you a poem called Intertwined by Marcus Amaker. As I read it, I invite you to bring to mind the people who you are woven together with. You don't have to look far for signs of connection, floor to ceiling strands of shared air, or sidewalk to sun, oxygen, binding our breathing. Trees are made up of the tightened tension of sticks, betwixt and between deep-rooted solitude that can withstand storms. Recycled, it can become art that reminds us of connection. We are no more than plants. Each lung's exercise is a leaning of meaning. We lean towards light, even when we are not nourished. But nourishment is enlightenment, because we are sticks held together by love, unbroken. I would like to be woven with you. Continue to picture those people we are woven together with. Allow gratitude to enter into your body for these people. At this point, an attendee describes herself as a member of a community who are caregivers for people with disabilities. Importantly, this community isn't geographically connected. She asked Cormac and John to talk about the importance of a specific place and if similar principles can be enacted in communities that are not geographically connected. I've had a lot of chance to see people who are dealing with people who have, quote, disabilities, unquote. And over and over again, the question is, how do these folks get connected? And the connecting process that you see that works takes a 
piece of ABCD, the first piece, and says relentlessly, what does this person have to offer? What do they want to offer? And the introduction to community is effective when the person you want to have introduced is showing that they have something that they can contribute. And incidentally, there is in Canada a city that works on this principle, and it's called Prince George. And you might look at Project Friendship because they have a group of citizens who say, how can we connect people in their neighborhoods? We connect them because we know what they offer, but they're disabled. Nonsense. We know much more about them than their empty hat. One of the things that I feel very strongly about is living with my brother, Kevin, who is labeled with an intellectual disability. Is he's got multiple expressions of community in his life. So some of what community is for him is connections around other folks who have a solidarity around his struggle. And, and I think that's a really important ennobling feature in his life. It, it matters hugely. But I think he also has many other expressions. So he loves music and he's got people that he associates around music with. And he's also deeply connected in the place that he lives in. And I actually don't think it should be either or. I think it should be a range of possibilities, that there's a range of entry points to a good life. I think it's difficult when we start talking about place, because of course, it might sound as if we are in a way dissing affinity groups or, you know, groups that are particularly working on issues of solidarity or exclusion. And we're not. But what we are saying, because actually there's hundreds of definitions of community, you know, in the sense community is whatever you say it is, because it's a verb, not a noun. We, we live it, we do it. Uh, it's an experience. But I do think it's worth emphasizing that for those who've been pushed to the edge, that there are great possibilities for inclusion in neighborhoods. If the neighborhood can figure out how to create a culture that says everybody here is in. And I think as a brother, that that would be incredibly nourishing for me. Both my parents are deceased now, but I think it made a massive issue for their end of life journey, knowing that Kevin wasn't just connected to a group of a community that had the same lived experience around disability or solidarity around that, but also many, many others. And actually it's his neighbors that had made the biggest difference to him on a day-to-day -day basis after mom and dad died with respect, not the people in his affinity group. I'd like to read the poem once more for you. As I do, I now invite you to bring to mind your neighbors, the people who, although you may not be intertwined with yet, offer a possibility for identity, connection, and community. You don't have to look far for signs of connection, floor to ceiling strands of shared air, or sidewalk to sun, oxygen, binding our breathing. Trees are made up of the tightened tension of sticks, betwixt and between deep-rooted solitude that can withstand storms. Recycled, it can become art that reminds us of connection. We are no more than plants, each lung's exercise is a leaning of meaning. We lean towards light, even when we are not nourished. But nourishment is enlightenment, 
because we are sticks held together by love, unbroken. I would like to be woven with you. Continue to hold your neighbors in your mind. Take a second and allow yourself to set an intention about how you'd like to relate to them in the coming days. Returning to the conversation, another member of the community describes his context in West Virginia, where he says 60% of young people in his county do not live with their parents. And when they age out of the foster care system, there's no sense of connectedness. Yes, Cormac and John, what should be done in order to get these young people at this stage of their lives connected to the community? I start my whole journey into ABCD started around this question. And I, in Ireland, you know, a lot of the work that I did in the early 90s was involved in shutting down very big religious institutions with other people, obviously, and moving into what we called community care. And it really struck me that there was neither community nor care in what we were doing. <laughs> we were taking people out of big institutions and putting them in smaller institutions. They just happened to be houses in neighborhoods. They were not community and they were not care. Mm. Despite the best efforts, by the way, of a lot of people like me who were, you know, overqualified and underexperienced. But what we could not produce in the form of a service was care or community. Because you can't, mm. that's not a service, right? The other issue is, it was pretty clear to me that the community folks, both from the neighborhoods that we were taking these kids from, which was an absolute rupture in their lives emotionally, which it haunted them right into their adult lives. And you could see it in mental health, physical health, and all sorts of outcomes, including morbidity. So it's shocking the damage we do when we take children away from families. It really is. It has to be absolutely the last resort. And in some communities, some countries, it's become the first port of call. But how so many of those communities, both from where they came and the communities from which we landed them into, really believed they had no role to play in those kids' lives. That this was professional work. You had to be paid. You had to be qualified. And so you had a retreat on the part of the community. Uh, a lot of professionals who really could not give these kids what they genuinely needed, which was a place where they were needed. The system, I think everywhere I go, this system has hit the limits of its capacity because it cannot do what it is promising to do, which is create community care, because that's what we call these. Mm. So I think we need to move into recognizing that actually the therapeutic models that we use, which is largely the methods that we've used. I, I'm trained myself as a clinical psychologist to realize that I trained in the wrong career. What we had to do is actually move into learning how to do community work. And uh, we fired an awful lot of the social workers, psychologists, uh, clinicians, and said, we got to get people who know how to actually build relationships in the neighborhood. It's a longer term question. I, we're doing some work at the moment with a number of really interesting initiatives in the U.S., uh, like Seeing Families, Finding Families Initiative. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's very much a social justice piece. It's one part of it is saying that our institutions are rupturing and causing huge harm to the families and communities. And that's a social justice issue, which is about professional dominance and overreach. We need to do something to push back against that. But in order to do that, we need to create a community alternative. I would commend to you learning from the work of Jerome Miller 
and the Massachusetts experiment. He, he, he offers a masterclass from the 70s in this idea that if you want to deinstitutionalize people's lives, you've got to recommunalize their lives. You can't push back against the institution unless you're creating a meaningful community alternative. And most foster care and childcare services have no community building component to them. There is no there there. And that's the piece we need to put right. Thanks for listening. Check the show notes for more info about Cormac, John, and their book, The Connected Community, Discovering the Health, Wealth, and Power of Neighborhoods. This episode has been hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and it's been produced by the amazing Joey Taylor, and music is from Jeff Borman. <laughs>